as I told you last night, really I should have started with talking to you about Rabban Gamliel before I got into the life of Rabbi Lezer ben Hokonos. But so much of what was going on with Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai then translates into his five students. Those five students, they're all different. But you need all of them, and you must understand all of them in order to understand the life of Rabban Gamliel. Because Rabban Gamliel is leading the political establishment. Of, remember, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai asks for, give me Yavne and its sages, give me doctors for Rabbi Tzadok, and give me the office of governor for the, of government for Rabban Gamliel. So we have a prince and a Sanhedrin. In order to understand the conflict between the Sanhedrin and the, the government, we must first understand who were the players in that Sanhedrin in order to understand everything that happens afterwards. So they're part of Rabbi Yoshua's story that we're not exactly going to understand until we get to the life of Rabban Gamliel. I ask you to bear with me. We'll get there. Bezat Hashem. Rabbi Yosef Masas, in his book, Nachalat Avot, uh, he spends uh, two months worth of Shabbatot teaching his community about the life of Rabbi Yoshua ben Chania. So he, he believed that this figure was someone that was worthy standing a lot of. Now, if you remember Rabbi Yoshua Mechania, was the same Rabbi Yoshua who was the antagonist, or depend, I guess, where you are in the story. But he was the opponent of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus, and he's the one who causes Rabbi Eliezer to be thrown out of the Sanhedrin. So we're now dealing with the other side of the story. And I ask for you to join us in the story without the biased opinion that maybe we don't like him because what he did to Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus. And just to understand, let's, who was Rabbi Yoshua on his own first? On page 453, Rabbi Yoshua Mechaniah, he was from the greatest Tanaim in the second generation. He was from the greatest students of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. That his rabbi said about him in Masechet Avot, So you remember Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai mentioned each one of his students and gave a compliment to each one. About Rabbi Yoshua, he says, Praiseworthy is the one who gave birth to him. Somebody once came to Rav Peretz and asked him about one of the Bechuim in the Yeshiva. What do you, what do you have to say about this Bechuim? Now, Peristan, he said, Ashrei Praiseworthy is the one who gave birth. This is something that you say, and you really mean it. Meaning, the parents should be proud to have a child like this one. I had PTA meetings this week. Oh, they call them something else nowadays. But, but, yeah, you know, the PTC. I don't know what that stands for, but uh, we, we were in the parents and the teachers that we met face-to-face over Zoom. And we had a conversation about our children and every one of my children. I can tell you, Baruch Hashem, thank you, Dr. Baruch. I can say, actually, praiseworthy are we that we have children that they can say nice things about. Such nice things. So, Elchanan Avinu, I'm here tonight. You made us very proud as parents. Baruch Hashem. Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas me'id alav she'imo ha'ita molichat arisato levet ha'kneset. Rabbi Dosa says that his mother, the mother of Rabbi Yoshua, used to bring his carriage, his crib, to the synagogue. Yerushalmi tells us so that his ears should already be hearing words of Torah. In fact, Rashi makes mention in his commentary in the Talmud that his mother used to go ask Chachamim, please bless my child that he should grow up to be like you. Please bless my child he should grow up to be like you. And last night we touched on breast of a little bit. 
Rabbi Nachman Abresna writes, he always asks that you should refer to him as Rabbi Nachman Ben Ben Fege. Yeah, he has a father's name, so why not? He said that he attributes all of his kedushah to his mother. His mother was the granddaughter of the Baal Shem Tov. So his mother, his mother's mother, was the daughter of the Baal Shem Tov. His mother's mother, meaning his grandmother, was taught Torah by her great grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov. When the Baal Shem Tov passed away, he gave each one of his kids a different department of his chasidut to run. And certain ones he gave to his daughters. They were leaders in their own right. Something that I'm not a Hasid, so I don't care much to expose the side of Hasidic history. But there definitely were in the early years of Hasidut the, the idea that you could have uh, female leaders in, in Hasidic circles. And he says that his mother used to take him all the time to the Bermidash from when he was a little boy to hear words of Torah. She'd also take him all the time to the grave of the Baal Shem Tov, all the time. Uh, the idea for him was that she wanted from a young age to make sure that he would hear Divrei Torah. And this is about Rabbi Yoshua, meaning his mother gets some credit in giving birth to this child. Already before the Chuban, and we discussed this when we read about Rabbi Eliezer in the encyclopedia, he was known to be one of the great Chachamim. He was from my tribe. I'm from his tribe, likely. He is from the tribe of Levi. And he would work in the Ben Mikdash with the singers of the Ben Mikdash. Like the Levine were broken up into different camps. Uh, everyone had different jobs, but he was from the camp of those who were singing in the Ben Mikdash. Which should tell you, Rabbi Yosemite says, is, that you should tell you, he had a nice voice. He had a nice voice. They wouldn't put you as a singer if you didn't have a nice voice. And this, Gemara uh, tells you, there's an interesting story where Rabbi Yosemite was trying to help one of the Levine do something that wasn't in his job. He said, go back to singing. You're good for singing. No, you don't belong here. In Masechet Sukkah, in the section, if you remember the end of Masechet Sukkah, the Chachamim are all talking about what Simchat Beit HaShoeva looked like in the days of Sukkot. And he writes, Shainu Simechim Simchat Beit HaShoeva in those days that we would celebrate in Simchat Bet Shena we didn't sleep the whole night. We didn't see sleep. And we were so busy celebrating in the Ben Mikdash. If you remember, there's not some kind of party like you're familiar with parties. My neighbors also have parties they don't sleep. But it's a different, totally different type of party. Uh, these Chachamim, they were celebrating and the nation was watching the Chachamim celebrating. Mirabani Yochanan ben Zakai lamad gamat chokhmat anistar v'asak v'maaseh merkava in Masechet Chagiga, it tells you that he didn't just learn regular Torah from his rabbi, but he also learned uh, whatever you are going to consider Maaseh Merkava, uh, that Maaseh Merkava, he learned from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Meaning he is not just a scholar, he is one with the character and the ability, the intellectual ability, to comprehend things that are beyond that which other Chachamim in his time were able to comprehend. The Talmud Yerushalmi tells us that he was ordained as a rabbi by Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. And even when the Sanhedrin was still standing, in the time of the Ben Mikdash, when it was still standing, he was involved in the conversations, though he clearly wasn't the leader of the Sanhedrin then, but he was involved in those conversations that were in the Sanhedrin pre the destruction. Upamachat, on the top of page 454, What's the Shkat Dir Haitzim? 
My father's on the call. Yeah, it's where they kept the wood in the bed of Mikdash. They had different places. They found bones. What kind of bones? Seemingly human remains that were there in the Mikdash. That's how I understand it. It could be the animal remains. I have to look in the, the Gemara and Zvachim. If somebody wants to look in Zvachim 113 and look what kind of remains, I'm almost positive of human remains. Now what's the problem? The problem is that there's tuma, there's impurity in the bed of Mikdash. The Kohanim are in big trouble. And what's the problem with tuma? If I recall in Masechet Zvachim, the rabbis, what they're talking about there is a conversation of whether Kohanim can walk around freely in the world knowing that they're not stepping on dead bodies or maybe because of the flood for example there are dead bodies everywhere and they don't know so they can't walk anywhere unless they've dug up the whole world to figure out where they could walk and one of the Chachamim was using this look we found even a dead body in the Mikdash that's, that's, um, that means that means that everyone's Tamim and the rabbis wanted to say that Yerushalayim is a place where Kohanim have to be careful where they walk Yerushalayim is innately Tamim unless you dig up places where Kohanim can walk Rabbi Yoshua stood up on his feet and he said, Isn't it a shame, an embarrassment for us that we would regard Yerushalayim, the city of our forefathers, as a Tuma place, a Tameh place, an impure place? It's not an emotional argument so much, but he is um, appealing to people's emotion. You're going to make, you want to be the rabbi who signs the halacha that Yerushalayim is impure? Is that, is that the one you want to contribute to the Jewish people? You're going to find consistently throughout the life of Rabbi Yoshua, despite his clashes with Rabbi Eliezer, which make him seem a tough person, that his character was a very easygoing character. Unlike Rabbi Eliezer, who we know to be very rigid and harsh, Rabbi Yoshua always tried to push halakha towards leniency. Likely, that's what made him clash with Rabbi Eliezer ben Okros. Rabbi Eliezer, the staunch traditionalist, is in a constant clash with Rabbi Yoshua, who's I'm not compare the the innovator, the reformer, you want to call him. He is the one who's always pushing towards moderation. On the eve of the destruction, if you remember in Gitin, we studied in page fifty-six, that the students of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai smuggled Rabban Yochanan out of the old city of Jerusalem, as in a coffin. They pretended he was dead. And he was one of the students who smuggled his rabbi out. And that's why Rabbi Yosef Masas, what did he say from that story? That there are some students who are willing even to give up their life, very good, uh, to save their rabbi or just to do his will. And that's exactly what he did. After the death of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, when the, the princehood returned back to the house of Hilin, He's appointed as a Nasi. And we're going to talk about, in, when we read about Rabban Gamliel, the shift in the Jewish people towards ruling like Hilel. There was a methodical approach at how we got the Jewish people to the camp of Hilel. Human remains? Yeah, okay. Shimesh Rabbi Yoshua Av Bedin Al Yedom. One of the commentaries says something? No. Okay. Shimesh Rabbi Yoshua Av Bedin Al Yadom. It's a Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. And he brings everything back to Hillel. Rabban Gamliel is appointed as the head of the, of the Nasiut. So Rabbi Yoshua becomes the Av Betadin 
together with Rabban Gamliel. So these are essentially colleagues. Rabban Gamliel being the Nasi, the prince, and Rabbi Yoshua being the head of the Bedin, the Sanhedrin. And he was one of the Chachamim of Yavne who were familiar with many, many languages. So he was a man who spoke many languages. It's a requirement, by the way, to be in a Sanhedrin, to be one who speaks languages. How can you judge things if you don't understand? There's certain things you can't interpret. You must hear them directly. Take testimony from someone. It must be done directly. And these things are values. It's amazing to me always. When you hear in the Jewish community, ah, we can't speak English, we've got to speak Yiddish, mama language, whatever. And, and let's put the, aside the fact that the Nazis also spoke Yiddish, just with a more German accent than the Jews did. Uh, so as Jewish of a language as you might think it is, it's not that Jewish of a language. Uh, why would there be something wrong with knowing English well? Now, there was a, if you remember, two years ago there was an attack in Mansi in a bit of Knesset, and some guy went and attacked Jews. And they were interviewing people who were there. And, and the guys couldn't get one sentence of English out of their mouth. Were you born in New York? Your father in New York? Your grandfather in New York? They don't speak English. Then why, why is there... To sit in the Sanhedrin, you would have to know English. Aside from his knowledge of Torah, and in language, he was a man of much wisdom. And he had knowledge in the fields of mathematics and in engineering. That's very interesting, the inference from Horeot. But let's leave it at that. Bidiotab. Hmm? Yeah. Yes. He used all of his wisdom and his knowledge to help his Jewish brothers. And he used to use this language that he had, the ability to speak. You know, in, in Europe, they called these Jews court Jews. They were Jews that they would go on behalf of the Jewish community to speak in Polish or in Lithuanian or whatever, Russian or whatever language, because the Jewish community was not able to adequately speak those languages and, and represent themselves. By the way, even if you speak language... It doesn't mean that you're familiar with the mannerisms with which you should act in a, in, a, in a royal court or in a chamber of the king. There are certain things. You have to be almost like a lobbying body that knows exactly what you have to say and which words you have to mention and which... What am I helping with? It all... <laughs> he used his knowledge of languages and cultures in order to help the Jewish people. And he traveled many times to Rome. Why Rome? Would anybody mind if I open the door? Are you going to be cold? No, good. Okay. Okay, right now you're under Roman occupation. And this is where the center of your occupying government is. Though what Baruch is saying is also true. There's a lot that's happening in Rome in this time period, intellectually. And the rabbis travel for government reasons and also to cross 
pollinate, if I could use those words, with other other chachamim of other faiths and other political motivations and such things. So he used to travel with Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, you know all of these chachamim, in order to save the Jewish people from whatever decrees the Romans were planning. And there were many times that he argued with the kings, Hasarim and nobility and other scholars from other places. We find in the Talmud, and I can't tell you it's more than anyone else, but it's a very high number of Gemarot in which you find hundreds of discussions between Rabbi Yoshua and members of other faiths or other other denominations of Jews, or he's very involved in debate, in engagement of, of ideas, and very often to prove Judaism over other people. Alexander is earlier in history. Yeah, he's from... Right, right. Um, also, that's right. On his way to Rome, Alexandria In the Gemara Nida tells us that he spent time in Alexandria, in Egypt, and also in Atuna. Where's Atuna? Not Pennsylvania. No. Ima, where are you? Atuna. Efu Atuna. Greece. Athens. In Greece, it's called Atuna. Thank you, Imam. And there's a reason why he goes there. They send his, oh, you can debate with us. You can't debate with those scholars in Greece. And he travels there to, to continue his debates. Though he lived in Pekin. Pekin, by the way, you can still find them in the map in Israel, in the Shvena. And that's where he lived. Yeah. So even though he travels a lot, he travel. There is some kind of ancient synagogue there. Is that what I'm remembering? Well, there's an old synagogue. Uh, I, I wouldn't say ancient compared to like other things in Israel. It was definitely a couple centuries old. Right. It's a Jewish village for the most part. Correct. So that's where he lived. So despite his travels, he did have a place where he lived. And you find here something interesting. The Chachamim did not all concentrate in Yavne or in Yerushalayim when there was a Sanhedrin. Sometimes they would live outside of those cities and they would gather. Not every uh, conversation of the Sanhedrin requires all the Sanhedrin to be present. And there are different reasons why. Maybe there were dates in which they uh, gathered. And you find the Chachamim were scattered, like Masechet Sanhedrin tells us. What is very interesting here, I'm close that What is very interesting here, sorry. is the relationship between Rabbi Yoshua and the Roman government. So this has a lot to do with uh, foreign policy, though it's not really foreign, but how do we engage with the Romans who are occupying us? This attitude is difficult to read, but it's wise. It's wise because you have to know which battles to fight in order to win your war. And sometimes in the name of Jewish nationalism, or in the name of being right, or in the name of, you, you, you're not strategic in your battles. And you end up losing the entire war. And our Chachamim, the reason they are Chachamim is because they have the wisdom. They possess that ability to know what are the fights we should pick and what are the fights we shouldn't pick. The Rabbi Yoshua's policy towards the Romans was very unique. Because he knew that the Romans were too strong for the Jewish people to oppose. He went out of his way to make sure that the Roman Jewish relations were peaceful. 
כשנתן הקיסר אדריאנוס ליהודים רשות לבנות את בית המקדש, when Adrianus uh, the Caesar, he gives permission to the Jewish people to build the בית המקדש, ואחר כך ביטל למעשה את רישיונו, and then as you know he got rid of his permission to build the בית המקדש, which is a devastating thing. בצוותו שיבנה, שיבנה לא במקומו, והיה בין היהודים שרצו לבוא במלכות. And then there were Jews that wanted to rebel against the Caesar. סיפר להם רבי יהושע משל. רבי יהושע told them the following parable. ארי טרוף טרף. There was a lion. There's a lion in the safari, Elchanan. When our Chachamim are talking about lions, where are they talking about lions? They spend time in Africa? Israel. And other areas around Israel. Are there lions there? Yeah, there are mountain lions. Oh yeah, there are mountain lions. This lion, Tarof Taraf, he attacked some animal and he ate it. Ve'amad etzem bigrono. On page 455, the problem was the lion ate so fast that a bone got stuck in his throat. This is Rabbi Yoshua telling him, Mashal, to the Jewish nationalist of his time. Amar, the lion says, any animal that will come and take this bone out of my throat, I will give him a reward. The kore comes. Very interesting that in the Midrash that I found in English, they translate kore as an Egyptian heron. Uh, though the word that we use for kore, I don't know if my parents are familiar with these birds, another bird. It's a very common bird. In parts of Israel? Make the noise? Yeah, it makes a lot of noise. It calls a lot. It chirps a lot. It's related to the the, yeah, the pheasant family. Pheasant? How do you say that word? Pheasant, right? It's related. It's a small little bird. It can fly, but it usually prefers to run. It doesn't always fly away. This little bird, he comes to the lion. And it makes more sense to me that it's this little bird than some huge Egyptian heron. Because the Egyptian heron, I mean, herons can be very large. So it makes sense to me that it's a much more vulnerable animal, and whoever translated the Bilshit the Rabbah just translated it. You know. He stuck his long beak, and that could be why they translated heron. Because if you look at this Korem, let me pull up what a Korem looks like. You know, there's a, there was a professor, maybe still, I don't know if he's still, uh, Professor Yehuda Felix. Who wrote many books on the botany and other things of the land of Israel? Here, this is a kore. So likely this is not the right bird because the midrash was saying he has a very long beak, which wouldn't match the Egyptian hair. I want to show the screen. So it could be that what Israelis call exactly right. So this is the Egyptian heron. I do not want to buy an Egyptian heron on eBay. I don't actually know what happened here. Which might make more sense. He has a long beak. Yes. 
he takes his long beak and he sticks it in the lion's throat. And he pulls out the bone. Now he tells the lion, give me my reward. The lion tells him, Go and brag to all your friends. Tell them you stuck your head inside of a lion's throat and you left without him biting your head off. What's the message he's giving to the Jewish people? Yeah, the Romans promised you a reward. Yes? You deserve that reward. Maybe. Now you're complaining to the Romans, why didn't you give me the reward? The lion says, you should just be lucky that you're still alive. We could have done worse to you. Right now, you're not in an advantageous position with which to fight with the Romans. The fact that they let you live, value that life, and wait for the day in which you're able to do what you need to do. But right now is not the time to start a war with the Romans. Kach dayenu, says Rabbi Yoshua, it's enough for us. We should just give thanks that we entered this nation in peace and that we should leave this nation in peace. This is a very humbling teaching. But it's about being real. At the end of the day, what do we need? We need the Bet HaMikdash? Of course we want the Bet HaMikdash. Rabbi Yoshua says, focus your energy on what we do have. We have a Sanhedrin. We have Yavne. We still have Yeshivot. We still have Chachamim. Why will you compromise everything that we do have for what you want? The Romans promised the Ben Mikdash, okay, if they would have let us build it, we wouldn't complain. They're not going to let us build it, we're still not complaining because we have what to do until then. Very often, and this is a story that repeats itself over and over. If you remember, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakai is trying to save Yerushalayim from the Birionim. The Birionim who want to go to war against the Romans to prove their point. We are Jewish freedom fighters. And Rabbi Yochan Zakai said, why? We could live here for another two and a half years. Maybe the Romans won't be here anymore in two and a half years. And the Bilonim, they go and they burn down all the storehouses of the Jewish people. Why? To force us into war. To force us to go to war. Yeah, so we, they force us into war. And what do we do? We lost the Ben Amikdash. Who destroyed the Ben Amikdash? The Jews who weren't willing to live with the fact that right now we're under siege by the Romans. That's where we are. That's, that's the reality of our life. In, the, in recent years, especially with the influence of the secular Zionistic movement, Strategic losses have always been treated as some type of failure. It's a galut exiled Jew. It's some type of Jew who doesn't know when to fight and how to fight. And... But sometimes the fight is not fighting. So we're people that have been around forever. We plan to be around forever. We've outlived every one of our enemies. Sometimes because we fought and won like the story of Hanukkah. Sometimes because we waited and do it, didn't do anything and they disappeared off the face of the earth and we were able to continue. And we trust, exactly that. We trust our Chachamim to tell us when to fight and when not to fight. That's the reason why before a Jewish king goes to war. What do we do? And if it's getting too cold, you're welcome to close the doors. If the Jewish king goes to war, before he goes to war, yeah, there's a whole process, but who does he go ask? The Kohen Gadol. You're the king. The Kohen Gadol is busy slandering goats. What are you? He is consulting with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Is this war worth going to war for? Do we have permission to enter every war? Wonderful, wonderful. And this is important. It's not about always going to war. Unfortunately, 
what I'm telling you now, it's, it's not a political statement. It's an observation of a, of a person who's not a general and not an officer and not even a soldier. Yeah. I find that sometimes we live in a country, no, that doesn't always know when to choose when to go to war or not to go to war. The price that we pay for that is a tremendous cost of life. Forget everything else. Forget your enemies. You're talking about today, for sure, hundreds of thousands of people who could still be here if we didn't stick our head into everything in the world. It's a dangerous thing, what I'm saying. Because sometimes as a world superpower, part of your job is to stick your head in problems that, that are not yours. Because they are yours. Because you're a big player on the globe. But even here, there's a process that has to be, you have to go through. People you have to consult with. You can't just decide, hey, I want to go to war. And there, this is a major calculation. What are we going to lose by engaging ourselves in a war? And, and the same thing with nuclear bombs. and There's a whole world that has to be consulted. Yeah? Sun Tzu's Art of War, I recommend the book. You don't have to accept it. It's not a Torah on the but there's a lot, of, a lot of wisdom that's that's written there. No, a lot of wisdom that's written there. Uh, and this one is, you're going to someone else's field, and you're fighting them in their territory. Uh, you know, I, I once sat with Rafael Gouraria here, and where it was a Veterans Day. He was telling me about how he got his Purple Heart and his Silver Star in Vietnam. And one thing you could say, whatever your opinion on Vietnam is, was that the Americans who were there stuck out like a sore thumb. They were fighting people who knew everything. They knew the land, they knew the terrain, they knew, and people were dropping like flies. Like mamash, like flies. That was their, uh, what, what are you supposed to do? What, what can I, you don't have any, any, there's like what they call the field, a home field advantage. No home field advantage. Here it's entirely a new world. And unfortunately, in Israel, not so long ago, we fought a war. In uh, northern Israel, southern Southern, northern Israel, northern, northern, so whatever you want to call it, northern, northern Israel, uh, and we were we were at war there, and there were soldiers that were lost to us, very simply because our army didn't provide sufficient resources for those soldiers. They just didn't plan. They didn't plan to go to war. They didn't plan how much food. People starved to death. And I'm talking about now, in in the last ten years, 12, 15 years. I don't know how long it's been. They didn't just have enough food. The people didn't plan properly. A war is something major. An uprising against an occupying force. Lemuel Shalai is telling you, this could make or break the Jew Jewish history. For real. So just be thankful that you're still alive. There's a place called the Three Waterfalls. It's probably, I forget the name, but there's this, a famous town nearby where it gets Jewish community. But uh, there, there's a base up there at the very north basically not sufficiently protected so they invaded that be that all basically wiped out that now in the last in the last time the israelis went into gaza there was they, they put out an official report of how many people lost their life because israel is still using world war ii surplus jeeps vietnam surplus things that they're simply not protecting their own soldiers. But you send your son or your daughter into the army. The one thing you expect, no matter where you stand, and in the army it's made up of right and left of Israel, you expect that the people you entrust your child with 
are going to do everything in their power to protect your child. And when you get a report that, not you, somebody's son's Jeep blew up because it's, it's 60 years old, it's barely dry, whatever, 30, it's malfunctioned, or the, the, the glass on it was broken, or whatever, then that's, that's a, a negligible loss of life. It's a negligent loss of life. Not negligible, negligent loss of life. And who's to, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise you then that people say, I don't want to serve here. I don't want to serve in a place that I think people are not taking care of me. I'm not telling you that's the right thing to do. But when making calculations of war, people are very easy to say, we should stick our head, we should do this, do that. It's not so simple. It's not so simple that every fight we have to have. It wasn't so long ago here in, in this side of the world that there was an airport, I've told you this before, that they decided they don't want a Hanukkah display in the airport anymore. They left the Christmas tree up, but they didn't want the rabbi to come, and they had some issues with the rabbi, whatever it was. They didn't want him to come and light his menorah, hand out the donuts, and you can really figure out what I'm talking about. And they sent him a letter like, thank you, but we're, we're not having you at the, the holiday season display. And so he sued the airport. And he said, this, what did he sue them for? That if they're not going to let him come, they have to take down all the Christmas decorations in the airport. I just think it to myself, and forgive me that I don't... I view myself not as American as some people listen to this you are. I was born here. I'm proud of being born here. I'm, I'm, I live here. I'm a citizen that tries to keep the laws here. And, but at the end of the day, I know that I'm, I'm still a guest here. If we, were, if we were strangers in Egypt, we're certainly strangers here. And I was thinking to myself, imagine the news. And that, those were the headlines. Rabbi tries to cancel Christmas. The things that could happen to Am Yisrael because of that, even you should know, even though I hear Jews talking about Iran, and the things they say, that's true. But you know, there's still Jews living in Iran. The things that you say could directly influence their life. So you be careful. You, you have to make sure that you think a hundred times about the people who you are compromising. They're our brothers and sisters. By your action. To the community that wanted the There was one rabbi in a community of many rabbis who decided to sue and cancel Christmas. But you're bringing a wave of anti-Semitism on us. Now, if this was Israel and someone's trying to say you can't light a Manoah by the Kotel, but you have to put a Christmas wreath, <laughs> fight all you want. But it's not Israel. It's not our country. Some would call this a Galut mentality. Okay, maybe I'm... Rabbi Yoshua is definitely in a Galut mentality because he's in Galut. He's in Israel, but, but occupied by Romans. This was a strategic loss to him. Rabbi Yoshua, as much as he was a wonderful singer and a very learned individual one thing we know about him Rabbi Yoshua lo chunan biyofi Rabbi Yoshua was not blessed with a gift of beauty is that a nice way to say that this one wasn't given the gift of beauty Hagadam Saperet the Gemara tells a story let's look it up together it's worth reading the story inside open up Masechet Tanit or and your mom was just saying that she loved the stories in Tanit Baruch, you're also doing the Dafimi or no, no? No, okay. So Ta'anit. Rachel is doing the Dafimi. Okay. Ta'anit, if you open up to 7, page 7, what do we say? 7, 8. Yeah. It's section 17. Okay, now let's do section 16. Se- 16. So 7a, subsection 16. Amar Rabbi Yoshaya. Rabbi Yoshaya said, Lama nimshalu divrei Torah lishlosha mashkin halalu? Why has the Torah been compared to these three liquids? Maim, yain, 
Chalav. Water, wine, and milk. Dichtiv, it says, Hoi kol lechul All who are thirsty, go drink, meaning Torah. Uchtiv, and it says, Lechu shivru ve'echolu, Lechu shivru belo kesef, Ulo mechiyayin ve'chalav. And again, Torah is compared there. Wine, you can go and buy this without money. The Torah, which is like wine and milk. Lomar lach, tatzili tell you, just like these three liquids, they only last when you put them in lowly vessels. Meaning, what do you buy your milk in? Carton? Plastic? Clay utensils? The Torah is only retained in a vessel that is lowly, that is humble. If you take your uh, milk and you put it in your copper kiddush cup, what's going to happen to your milk? It's not going to stay fresh and pure and good. But we used to have a kos kiddush on the Berachnesa, where if you leave the wine in there for long enough, it will go sour, right? If you remember, we got we don't we still have it, but we don't use it. We got that blue one. The Gemara says this is similar to the story where the daughter of the Roman Caesar tells Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiyan. That's our Rabbi Yoshua. Woe to the glorious wisdom that you have that is stuck inside of such an ugly body like yours. Amala, he tells her, Does your father keep his wine? In clay vessels? What are we going to keep it in? Like, what, what, what's the question? Of course we keep our wine in clay vessels. You are important people. You're not peasants like me. I keep my wine inside of a ceramic jug. But you have gold and silver. An important person like you should be keeping their wine in gold and silver. Azna, she goes, She tells her father, and so he took all the wine and he put it in vessels of gold and silver and lo and behold it soured the advisors came and told him he tells his daughter who told you this crazy advice to take all of my wine and put it inside of silver and gold that rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua Mechananiah. they summoned him to the royal palace. He tells him, Why did you tell my daughter to put all of my wine in gold and silver? The way that she told me is what I told her. I mean, she told me, Woe to my Torah that's in such an ugly body. So I told her, woe to your wine that's in such an ugly vessel. I gave her the same advice she gave me. The emperor retorts back. But there are good-looking people who are able to learn Torah. Look, my wife taught yesterday. There are good-looking people able to teach Torah. Yeah? That's for the clips, for the guys on YouTube. <laughs> on page 7b, Rabbi Yosha said, if they were ugly... They would have learned even more Torah. I mean, that was the that was the question. They answered him back. 
this story by Rabbi Yoshua tells you very clearly that Rabbi Yoshua was not the best looking gentleman. But he was very aware of it. And he attributed his Torah knowledge to the fact that he wasn't so good looking. Yeah, it was okay. Didn't need us. Now, something interesting to me, and I just I have to tell you. In the Gemara, yeah, yeah uh, Gemara was not written by Orthodox Jews. It's a very interesting conversation. I will tell you though something interesting to me, and that is, and I haven't looked in the Ganic side of this, but part of me wonders: was Rabbi Yoshua really not good looking, or was he not good looking for the Romans? Notice who's critiquing his looks. It's not, I mean, we have stories in the Gemara. He's uh, an ugly person. Oh, what an ugly person you are. And he says, go tell the one who created me why he made me ugly. We have stories where Jewish people call out other people for not looking good. I wonder, this is just me, I don't have any source for this. If there's something here, under occupation, people try to look different than what their beauty tells them they should be. I was reading that in Africa, there's a tremendous crisis, a health crisis, of people who are bleaching their skin they take bleach and apply it to their skin and they get all kinds of toxins in their skin and they get sick from this and the doctors are begging people not to do it but there's a certain whiter people or fairer skinned people are better looking than we are there's countries in, in Asia that are everyone's getting surgeries to look more American or to look more Western or whatever that might be and it's really it's very sad it's it's Look, there are waves here. My grandmother, so my father's mother, was very upset with my father for dating somebody who was so skinny. Because skinny people meant that her parents didn't care to feed her. And she, in her culture, the larger you were, the more beautiful and the more important you should be. And you live in a world today where people are in hospitals with anorexia and all kinds of other because they they can't even gain a pound or else they start to feel like they're overweight and they're obese and they're all kind of, and this attitude of not being happy with who you are is one thing. Endemic, exactly right. But this is more than this is identifying with what other people are telling you that beauty looks like. It's not, other people tell you that I should look a certain way. That's what makes me beautiful. Here it's very interesting to me that Rabbi Yoshua, you know, you can, you can make me live in Galut. I'm taking a message from here that I don't have a source for. You can make me live in your Galut. I can be stuck in your exile. But you lose your right to tell me what is beauty and what is not beauty. I mean, he's answering her in her terms. I'm, I'm giving you a chutzpah. But he's not telling, oh, you know, I'm stuck in Rome, so I have to be, when in Rome, be a Roman. He's not telling you that. The hefech. No, I, in our world, wisdom is beautiful. What does he say about Esther? There's a machlok in the Gemara, whether Esther was beautiful or not. Remember? She comes to the Tachash Verosh, but Tisachen, Vechesed Lefanav. She invokes grace and, and not beauty, physical beauty, but emotional beauty, spiritual beauty in front of him. And the rabbis there get in the discussion was Esther really beautiful or was she ugly? And the words the rabbi used for ugly, she was green. She was green and rather she was beautiful. By the way, when I was learning this Gemara, Masech Migilam, I learned Masech Migilam in Baltimore in ninth grade. And the rabbi who taught it said, she looks Sephardic. No, don't lie. You're laughing. But you imagine those of us who were Sephardic in the class. So she was ugly. But because she had so much chen, then she was considered beautiful. Oh, you, you learned it also. He must have learned in the same school. Yeah. I said, if you say Sephardim, I had a rabbi who used to say Sephardim. He used to say, like, frogs. So maybe, we're, maybe we are green. Could be. I don't know. That's the thing. 
Uh, but I say, the question here is, what is really beauty? And Estelle, some of our Chamim say she was beautiful in her personality. Rabbi Yoshua, there's a Jewish value here. I don't know that the Romans appreciated beauty as in... Uh, he's stuck. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if the Romans appreciate... What do we say? Don't, don't look at the picture, but look what's inside the picture. We are taught in our world to look at beauty in a different way. The, the, the external beauty is a lie. It's deceitful. A woman who is a God-fearing person, that's one that, that, that will be praised. I wonder if Rabbi Yoshua is responding... I wonder if Rabbi Yoshua is responding in this type of manner. My Torah is what makes me beautiful. You're looking at what Romans look at. But by us, this is a different type of beauty. Like I told you, this is entirely my message. Give me a few more minutes. I want to try to cover as much as we can about Rabbi Yoshua. Lamot kol chokhmato. Back in the main text on 455. Thank you. Regardless of all his, the first word in line, Lamot, under the word Kesef. Despite all of the knowledge he had and the wisdoms that he had, he always lived in poverty. You should know this is later going to become a point of contention. You have a prince in the Jewish people who lives like royalty. And then you have the head of the Chachamim who lives in abject poverty. What does poverty mean? We'll see in just a moment. And fulfilled in him the verse that says, that the wise will not have bread. He was involved in some type of, I'm not convinced it's exact. He was involved in, in, in making all type of, he's a tasiyat machatim, is making needles, needle making. He was involved in working with metals, coals, whatever it was, he was using heavy, heavy, his house turned black from whatever industry was inside of his home. And in Ho'ayot, Rashi mentions there, there were times in his life that he literally had to wander from place to place to sell the things that he had, that he made in order to get some money to eat and to live. So you are talking about Jewish people in Galut in a certain sense. The head of the Sanhedrin is really poor. Yeah, there's a story that I'm thinking of. And I, I, I want to share with you now. Let's end off on that note. Okay, we'll end off on that note. Uh, open the Gemara in Masechet Berachot, if you can. So I'll tell you where. You're going to go Talmud. You click on Berachot. You'll look for 28A. Yeah. And I'm in subsection 9. Now you are going to read this now. We're going to discuss it at length when we get to the life of Rabban Gamliel. But you cannot ignore this sugya when discussing how poor Rabbi Yoshua was. 
So there was a famous war between Rabban Gamliel and Yoshua. If you remember, Rabban Gamliel ends up being removed from the head of the yeshiva, of the Nasiut, and the Nasiut, and they replace him with someone else. That's not our story for today. But in that war between him and Rabbi Yoshua, he was of the opinion that maybe he needs to go and ask forgiveness from Rabbi Yoshua. So this is the story that we're in right now. It's in the middle of a war. We're going to discuss this war and all of its ramifications later in the shiur. Number nine. Rabban Gamliel said to himself, Since this is a situation that people are following Rabbi Yoshua, I mean they're taking sides, and the side that they're taking is that of Rabbi Yoshua, not of mine. Azil I'm going to go and ask for I'm to go, try to make peace, appease Rabbi Yoshua. When he reached the house of Rabbi Yoshua, he saw that the walls of his house were all black. He tells Rabbi Yoshua, you know when you go to someone's house and you, what do you say? Oh, what a nice house you live in. Oh, I like your couch. You have to say something about your house. Rabbi is doing the same thing. I have to say something nice about his house. What does he say? From the walls of your house, it seems to me that you're a blacksmith. I don't know what's going on here. Rabban Gamliel is the Nasi. Rabbi Yoshua is the head of the Sanhedrin. These men are working side by side. They travel to Rome together. They are taking trips together. Rabban Gamliel is discovering for the first time in his life that Rabbi Yoshua has to work for a living. And that he works in such a difficult uh, physical labor job. Amar lo. Rabbi Yoshua looks at Rabban Gamliel and don't judge Rabbi Yoshua. He's stuck here at the, at the peak of his, of his hurt from Rabban Gamliel. He tells him, Oy lo lado. Woe to the generation, Shata Parnaso, that you are its leader. Because you have no knowledge of the suffering in which Tamidech Chamim live in. The difficulties in making a living and feeding their family. Woe to the generation that you lead them. Here, Biyoshua is rebuking Rabban Gamliel. You're so excited, you found out what I do for a living. Where were you all these years? Yeah, it's true. It's, I, I didn't want to mention that until we get to that conversation on the boat. You should know, and I'm, I may be here, we'll throw a, a bone to you. <laughs> this won't be a spoiler. But the same Rabbi Yoshua who causes Rabbi Eliezer bin Hukunus to go retreat into his home and hide for the rest of his life, Rabban Gamliel does the same thing to Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua is now hiding in his home from Rabban Gamliel. And, and like I told you, if we were going to learn Agadah here and look at cycles and wheels and how things work, we would do that. But this is, despite all of the stories we read, this is not an Agadah class. This is a, a life lessons class. Here, Rabban Gamliel is being told something that I think every world leader needs to know. And it's not Chazlon, I'm not saying anything bad about Rabban Gamliel. You make laws about parking on this, this side of the road, on this side of the week, and you make laws about public transportation. You make laws about... Dear President, dear Prime Minister, dear Knesset member, when was the last time you ever had to park your own car? When was the last time you ever had to take a subway in New York? You make all kinds of laws of things that you have no idea what the people who go through those problems live in. Yeah, you have all that public housing, Section 8, welfare, food stamps. When's the last time you had to stand in line and pay with food stamps? It's nice to be sitting in Washington, D.C., making rules. You have a driver, takes you to a five-star restaurant to meet with your buddies, and then the people who are, your buddies don't know about that, you meet with them. All of that stuff you do is amazing. 
But how are you leading people when you have no idea the type of life that they are living? And who are you talking about? It's your colleague. You find out something happens to work. You know, sometimes it happens in the bit of Knesset. So I, I find out that somebody was in the hospital. And nobody told me. And I forget, I'm not even, I'm sure that someone's going to have a complaint. Ah, the rabbi didn't call me, the rabbi didn't visit me. I accept all the complaints. What I, what I wonder, how did I not know? How did, how did someone not tell me? There's someone here who needs, they needed a phone call, rabbi. You didn't give a, I don't know everything. Sometimes I, I think of a Ban Gamil at this moment. You didn't call. You weren't there. Rabban Gamliel is at this at this story, not his whole life, in this story is the epitome of the out of touch leader. Rabbi Yoshua, the people are following him. Why are the people following him? Because the people look at the two options that they have. And they see one man who doesn't understand them, who doesn't know their struggles. And one man who does, despite how poor he is, and there's all kinds of arguments, by the way, you've heard them in, in recent elections many times over, about how important it is to have a wealthy person leading as opposed to a poor person, and wealthy people are independent, and they're free-spirited, and I've heard these have been conversations that have had. And those, by the way, are, are important conversations. You'll find that when we replace Rabban Gamliel and the Sanhedrin, our rabbis look for somebody who's wealthy. I mean, in, yeah, they, they're looking for people who are, are not reliant on others. They're not looking for that handout from this big corporation because they don't need it. Chachamim are looking for that also. I'm not saying that conversation is not important. But when they're looking, so do we go for the wealthy man who doesn't know us or for the poor man who really understands what it means when it says you have to give your tzedakah to somebody? Then that's who we're going to choose. And B'zalat Hashem, next week, actually, I'm not here next week, so you're going to have to forgive me. You know I'm thinking? It could be that Thursday we should make up for last night's class. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to, t- no, this Thursday. Maybe we should toy with, I'm not telling you for sure we're not going to have a guide at the class, but it could be we should do the second part of this on Thursday. That way when I take the week next week when I'm not here, we don't like have a gap. We'll get back to this in two weeks and forget everything we know about Yusha. I'll let you know, but the, the next shiur that we'll be having will be about the second half of the life of Yusha and how that relates to the rest of Jewish history that is happening at this time. Uh, I'll stick around for questions. Thank you for learning with me.